Well, it's great to be with you this morning. What an interesting week we've had across Australia. Um, hearing about parts of Victoria that most probably never knew existed. Little towns, what tragedy to see um, everything go up in smoke. Uh, I've, I've never really been too close to a bushfire, but the closest I've been is pretty scary, and that's a couple of miles away. They are massive things. The, uh, the church shines, I think, in times of bushfire or tragedy because there's something within the Christian people that says when there's a tragedy, we need to be there. Uh, most probably the Salvation Army would be at the vanguard of support down in those areas, caring for people and doing that wonderful compassionate task of helping people in their moment of tragedy. But other things have happened that's caught our attention in the news this week. And most probably, I wonder how well the church, the voice of God, the compassion of God has actually shined or shone in those moments. I'm thinking of Woodridge where uh, some racial tension and some issues have come and, and uh, things that make us feel very uncomfortable when people start rioting and, and uh, expressing it. And we've really only got the media to go by and that's most probably not the best thing to go by. As they uh, give us the images that we see on our TV or we read in our papers. And I wonder what actually starts getting triggered in us as the people of God when uh, those images come on the screen. And I wonder what we start thinking about if someone interviewed us as to what the solution would be in Woodridge or some other place of tension. And maybe we'd find some attitudes start to come to the surface which we wouldn't actually like to have published. Uh, one of our politicians found himself in hot water this week because he let loose his thoughts as to wonder how many of those people got a job anyway. Did you hear about that? And that didn't get well received. I wonder whether there's some other things that go on when we start seeing those things that maybe we think, well, why don't we send the Samoans back to Samoa? What are they doing here anyway? Hmm. And then we uh, find out, if you followed it reasonably closely, that there was a story of an 18-year-old boy who's standing there with a great big um, weightlifting bar in his hand, a weightlifting bar of some description, and then saying, uh, that photo's not really who I am. Did anyone catch that? And if you read the story, it actually goes on to say, I've been brought up in a Bible-believing home and my mum's horrified that I'm doing this sort of thing, being involved in a riot. I wonder if that 18-year-old actually walked in through the door right now and we found out that one of the rioters down there was one of us. What sort of attitudes start to stir within us? And then most probably the biggest story of the week for those that enjoy sport is Lance Armstrong. And the, the tirade of anger and other issues and expressions of disgust that have been thrown at this man. 
Now, in none of what's happening in Woodridge or what's happening with Lance Armstrong am I in any way condoning their actions. But what I like to do is to take those sorts of issues and hold them up to us as a bit of a mirror to see what's actually in our own heart. Because we most probably could easily say, look, I've never done anything as bad as Lance Armstrong. I've never lied to the media or, or done drugs in such a way to get an edge over others in competition and receive medals and all those sorts of things and heaps of sponsorship. Oh, no, that's not me. I'm a good boy. Or maybe I've never been involved in a riot or uh, threatened somebody or really got involved in something like that. And I excuse myself from even feeling any compassion for those for whom their sins are being yelled far and wide across the nation. And the challenge, I believe, is as we read those things and hear those things, that we let them be like a bit of a mirror to us of actually what's in my heart. If when I see the story of Lance Armstrong, there is nothing in me that says, that man needs to hear the message of forgiveness in Christ. That he has a saviour. That regardless of the depth of his sin and the lack of um, trust that now can be expressed towards him, and is he still telling the truth? I don't know. But I do know this thing. Christ died for him. Can you take Someone like that, who you might describe as the vilest of sinners and say that the mercy of God is available for them? That's what I'm saying is the mirror that comes out of watching these things to see what's actually in my own heart and feel like at times I might not have any compassion for them. I might not have compassion for the people of Woodridge. Why don't they just ship away or something else like that? And when I start to feel that, then I am a million miles away from the compassion of Christ. I'm a long, long way away from the mercy that I believe Christ wants to express. For those of us a bit older, we know an organisation called Teen Challenge. Fascinating beginning to Teen Challenge, where... A, um, a country preacher in the United States happened to be watching the news back, I think it was in the 1960s, to hear of a horrendous crime. As I remember it from the movie and uh, a little bit I've seen of the, or read of the book, that some, uh, a gang of young men set upon a person in a wheelchair and killed him. As David Wilkinson, a country preacher, read it, saw it, grappled with it, he was so moved with compassion that he said to his wife, Honey, I've got to go. I've got to go to New York. I've got to get down there. Those people need to hear about the love of Christ and that the dead-end world that they're in, the sinfulness that they're caught up with, doesn't have to be their lot. That Christ has come to forgive every sinner in every place 
And we sometimes in our Western world get to the place where we think there are people that are deserving of the love of God. And there are those that, well, they've got their own problems. Maybe when they fix themselves up and become a little bit more middle class, they'll be eligible for the mercy of God. If we look at the news, and even in what I'm saying this morning, if you say, Richard, I couldn't pray for Lance Armstrong that he would come on his knees. He's done too much wrong. Well, let me give you a couple of scriptural people that you've got trouble with there. Let's go to Paul. Paul, who's given us almost uh, a third of the New Testament, even not a bit more. Do you know how he described himself? Paul, in the realisation that he'd been involved in some things and been against God, said that he classified himself as the chiefest of sinners. Now imagine if today, tonight, or one of the current affairs programs was around in Paul's day. How they would have lampooned the Christian faith because look at this guy. This is the one that's your spokesman. We've got the dirt record on him. We've got everything that he's done wrong and you still want to follow him? What about David? David who gave us most of the Psalms. The one who is the hero of Israel. The one who gave us so many wonderful moments as we read the Old Testament. And in fact, Jesus is the son of David. When you read Psalm 51, which many of us would do when we're caught out in a moment of sin or a moment of time when we feel that there's some contrition going on in our heart, Psalm 51 is written at the moment that the prophet Nathan is telling David of his sin, which was he killed a man so that he could get his wife. How tragic is that? See, the Bible is full of people who stuffed up but yet found grace and mercy. And so when you start looking at the vilest of sinners and you start to try to weigh up how could they ever be worthy of the love of God or the sacrifice of God, it actually helps us see the greatness of the sacrifice. That the blood of Christ could actually cover someone as rotten as whoever you're thinking of. God, would you move our hearts with compassion for those who are caught up in the issues of Woodridge. Lance Armstrong's got an interesting life ahead of him. How euphemistic is that? Wherever he goes, around this world, someone's going to be there with a microphone, shove it in his face, and most probably not really wanting a story, and most probably want him to relive and relive and relive his fallenness and his sinfulness. Yes, he's done some terrible stuff. I, I don't defend him. But I defend the right of him to find the grace of God. Because when we truly understand the nature of the gospel, when we truly understand what Christ did upon the cross, 
we can look at the issues of this week, we can look at the things that in myself I will judge, and then I turn them around to say, I'm not worried about Lance Armstrong other than I'd love to see him find the love of God, but I'm finding in my own heart some judgmentalism that I'm not really pleased with. And I think God wants me to look at the news like that and say, Richard, you move with compassion for these people. Or you sit there in your self-righteous judgment of saying, oh, I'm not like that. There's a great passage in Luke 18 that Jesus tells almost like a parable of two people, a sinner and a Pharisee, about how they approached God. Have a read of it if you're not familiar with it. And Jesus told that particular story so those who would trust in themselves would realise they've got it all messed up. See, at the end of the day, none of us can actually stand before Christ in our own merit. I'm not going to try it. The one or two good things that I think I might have done pale into insignificance when I looked at all the things I've done wrong. Every attitude that I've had that's been imperfect. I don't need to list them all. I know they're all there. But what I know is that there's a saviour who will forgive those who said, Richard, I'll take it all so that I can actually stand sinless before my maker. And see, that's the offer for me. Have I got the exclusive rights over this? No. It's there for each one of us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 29, it talks about how God has chosen so many things and it ends up saying so that no flesh, no person will boast before the Lord. There is nothing for us to boast about. Regardless of our accomplishments, regardless of how clean and pure we think we've been, none of that counts when we fully understand God. So what I want to do this morning, that's by way of introduction, is I want to talk about how I believe this process happens on a daily basis. Because I would believe many people that are sitting here this morning have already come to a, an understanding of the gospel and received forgiveness and come out of the, under the sentence of death under the sentence of life. Your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life using the words of Revelation. But what happens on this daily basis when, yes, I, I start to feel I'm getting a bit convicted by the Holy Spirit that something's not right. Has God given up on me? No. Is God after something? Yes. What's God after? Well, God's after refining and sanctifying and changing so that I will stay humble, reliant upon him, so that I can be used by him. What would happen if Lance Armstrong came into our church this morning? He came up to you and said, look, you've seen my story. There's probably half the story has not been told. Have you got any news for me? Have you got any counsel for me? See, God wants his church not just active in the crises of bushfires, but in the crises of moments and days of people's lives so that we can go to them when they, they, God brings them across our path 
and we become ministers of reconciliation. We are people who have good news to bring. Not fearful news of judgment, but good news of salvation. May we be people that throughout this week are knowing what it's like to be giving life away. Not how terrible this is or how uh, rotten somebody is. May we be people of grace and mercy. I want to just briefly this morning just talk about a, an image from the Old Testament that I trust will actually help you understand how God is wanting to forgive. Not just for the moment of salvation, but an ongoing basis as salvation is worked out within us. It's called the mercy seat. Now, if you know it well, you'll know that the mercy seat was given as an instruction by God to Moses in the book of Exodus. Exodus is this amazing journey where God has, after 400 years of having his people captive within the land of Egypt, is now saying, now is the time I'm taking you out of Egypt, I'm going to take you into the promised land. Doesn't that sound marvellous if you'd been a slave for 400 years? Well, I don't think any of them had been alive for 400 years, but the people had been. It's fascinating to go into countries that have been in sort of like a 400-year period of, of being under domination. I remember living in the Philippines for a year and having visited the country a number of times. For about 400 years, the Philippines had been either under Spanish domination or they'd been under American domination. And even though you're dealing with the latest generation, there is something almost inbuilt within them that looks so different to us as Australians because we've never been in that sense dominated. Not by another people. We might have been dominated by some other issues, but that's another, another discussion. Anyway, so here's the Israelites, 400 years. Now's the moment to be set free. And the story of Exodus, if you're not familiar with it, boy, you need to be familiar with it. It is one of the most exciting passages in Scripture. Parting of the Red Sea, the fight between Pharaoh and God, the miracles that are happening left, right and centre, how God takes a group of people, they'd say in the 600,000 men and, and all the rest of their families, on an amazing journey. And instead of taking them on the easy route, takes them on the hard route. Instead of taking them along the coast, he takes them straight out into the desert. Well, imagine if we left from Toowoomba here and we were heading for Sydney. And instead of taking us down the lovely coastal way, or even down the mountain way, we go straight out west, going out via Alice Springs or something else, across the Simpson Desert. And how many put their hands up for that? No, thank you. I'm just got, get me to the end. Do I have to go through the Simpson Desert to get there? And when you get out there, what have you got? Nothing. Well, that's what those people faced. Except they had no other choice because on the journey, they didn't know where they were going. They ended up going through that place, seeing amazing things. Well, on the particular journey, which ended up taking 40 years, but in the first year, God is actually giving them things. He's giving them the Ten Commandments. He's given them a whole new calendar. Told us this is a new beginning. Abib will be the first month. And they, they started everything new. 
He's giving them manna. He's giving them water out of a rock. He's giving them um, quail and, and other birds are coming from time to time. Amazing. Giving them a cloud, pillar of fire. It's all happening. You think it's happening to the G? Well, wait a minute. Go out to the wilderness. My goodness, was it happening? But if it didn't happen, it was all over Red Rover. Day by day, they had to trust in God. So in this first year, God has given them all these things. And then to help them understand who he was, because that's part of the problem, isn't it, folks? We go on this journey with God, we don't really know who God is. We think we've got something together as a bit of an idea, but it's not the full picture, far from it. God takes them on a journey. Strips them of everything, so the only place that they can go is to him. And along the journey, he says, I'm only want you to see, in a sense, uh, who I am, because I'm going to get you to build something called the tabernacle. Just like a tent structure. And in this particular tent, we're going to put a fence around the outside, and the measurements are there in the scriptures, and being a mathematician, I like the numbers. Tell you it's 100 cubits long and 50 cubits wide, then you've got to ask what a cubit is. Well, that's another discussion. But it seems to be the measurement from your finger down to here, about 18 inches long. Build, build this thing. Put up this tent in the middle. Put it high enough so that people can actually see it above the perimeter curtain. So there it is, right in the middle of where the people are. Every time that they move their camp, the tabernacle moves, they set it up, then they set all their camping up according to the position of the tabernacle. So God, in that sense, is travelling with them. And above that tabernacle came a massive big pillar of fire at night and also a big cloud. And every time they saw the cloud moving, everybody had to pack up because God was moving. When God moved, you moved. When God stopped, you stopped. So they followed the cloud and God took them for 40 years on a journey like that. I'm not sure how many of us would sign up for that. Sounds a bit rough. Anyway, no shops, no Big Macs, or whatever you're into. Not there. All you're eating is this thing that you're ending up calling, what is it? Manna. Anyway, we get into the tabernacle. Here it is. 100 by 50, a little tent which is 20 by 10. And inside that, there's another tent, which is uh, a 10 by 10. So you've got 10 by 10, 20 by 10, anyway. God starts labelling these things. Calls it the outer court, which is the space between the curtains and this tent. Then he calls one of these places the holy place. That's the first tent. And then God labels the second one the most holy place, or the holy of holies representing something about God. God is powerful, yes, but that's not the names that he gave. The name that he gave to the inner tent is called the Holy of Holies. Now, this particular tent needed some furniture. There were six pieces in all that were going to be made. And right in the middle of the inner tent, there was only going to be one piece of furniture. Not only was there going to be one piece of furniture, there was only going to be one day of the year that anyone could go into this place when it was in operation. 
All this is symbolism. All this is a picture. All this is like a little lesson for us. What's it trying to say to us? And I hope to get to that in a moment. So this most holy place has only got one piece of furniture and the whole room is called the Holy of Holies. The piece of furniture that had to be put in there was what's called the Ark of the Covenant. They made it. It was a box shape, um, about so wide, about so tall, and it was overlaid with gold and that was called the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the ark, they had to build something, which is what I'm coming to, the mercy seat. On top of the ark, they had to build something that looked like a seat. And above that seat was something like two cherubim facing each other. Now, if you do a Google search, you can type in mercy seat or the ark of the covenant, and you'll see various representations of it. But because no one took a photo of it, we don't know exactly what it looked like. We've got the dimensions and... If you have a look at the Google, you see different interpretations of what a cherubim looked like because, well, you don't see those every day. So you've got these cherubim facing each other and right in the middle is what's called the mercy seat. That's what God called it. So we get this view about God that God's extremely holy. We have no problems with saying, God, you know, we don't come near to you because you're so holy. And that's what you require of us and all that's true. But to have access into God's holiness, God knew what the problems were going to be and he said right in the middle, what I want to do is to put a mercy seat because my holiness and my mercy, my holiness and my love, my holiness and my compassion go together. Folks, don't separate them. When you're starting to feel like something's unholy or there's some problem out there in someone's life. Yes, there's this issue that they're falling short of the holiness of God. But what do they need to hear about? They need to hear that not only there's that issue of judgment and holiness, bring alongside the mercy and do it simultaneously. God has given us the ministry of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us. May we be active in that by telling people, listen, there's a mercy seat. Now what actually happened on this mercy seat is another wonderful picture for us of the greatness of the sacrifice that would come one day in Jesus Christ. Remember how I said that uh, God set up a calendar? Well, he told people what to do on certain days, gave them their holy days. And three times a year there were supposed to be what's called feasts. There was the feast of Passover, there was the feast of of Pentecost and there was the Feast of Tabernacles and some of you with good Bible knowledge will say well I've heard of those in the New Testament Jesus died at Passover yes he did something happened on the day of Pentecost yes it did Feast of Tabernacles in the New Testament I'm not sure I find it as clearly so let me tell you what happened in the, in the Feast of Tabernacles it was in the seventh month and there was a time for the people to get prepared. But on the tenth day of the seventh month was to be called the Day of Atonement. This is part of the feast. After this particular day, it then went on to a couple of other things. But on the Day of Atonement, as the calendar went, was actually the holiest day of the year for them. I think they now call it Yom Kippur. 
and as the Jewish calendar goes different to our calendar, uh, it, it moves throughout the year in terms of when it is. But the Day of Atonement was the most significant day because on this particular day was the day that someone was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. Only one person. It had to be the high priest. So God had set up a structure where there was a high priest. Aaron was the first high priest. And he had the job on the Day of Atonement, on that first one, to show everybody as they stood around and watched the demonstration of how God was dealing with sin. See, Passover was the passing over of death, coming out from death to life, being set free by the blood of the Lamb. The curse had been rolled away. That's what happened at Passover. But at the Day of Atonement was the day when God demonstrated to his people what he was doing about sin. And he did it in almost like a demonstration. Everyone was around watching. And the demonstration was simply this. Aaron is the chief priest. You first of all go in and you take the blood of a bull so that it's your sins that are being atoned for as you go into the most holy place. Then you come back out and then you're going to go in a second time as all part of the one ritual. On the Day of Atonement, what needed to happen was as he came out, having gone in with the blood for himself, he's now come out and in front of him are two goats. One of these goats is going to live and one of these goats is going to die. The blood of that goat is going to be taken in to the most holy place. But the other goat, Aaron symbolically, the high priest symbolically, was going to lay his hands on that goat and in doing that was going to be um, releasing the sins of Israel, of everybody, onto the head of this goat and then that goat was going to be let go. And this goat was just going to run out into the wilderness never to be found again. No one went chasing it. It was the demonstration that God was taking away our sin and we would never again have to worry about it. The sin had been dealt with. So that was the, what happened on the Day of Atonement. And after that they had more of the Feast, the feast of Tabernacles where they had some celebrations. Rejoicing in being the people of God. Rejoicing that our sins have been forgiven. Now for them as the people of God in, at that time, they had to wait one day a year to see that actual process of their sins removed. The great news for us is that we don't have to wait for any day. All we've got to wait for is a moment. That moment can be now, it can be later, it can be any time. It can be at one o'clock in the morning, one o'clock in the afternoon. Whenever you are feeling the need to be putting things right with God, you've got access because when Christ died upon the cross, something else was happening back in the temple. You can read about it. The, the curtain that separated the most holy place from the holy place, it says it got ripped that particular day. It actually tells us the direction it got ripped. It got ripped from the top to the bottom, not by man but by God, symbolically. And what it's saying is there is no longer any need for you to wait for one day of the year. The blood of Christ will cleanse you from sin at any moment, at any time, at any place. 
you have access. Do I hear an amen or a hallelujah? Does that excite you? It excites me enormously. I have access. You have access. You have access when you have that moment when the mirror is held up to you and something's shown in your heart and your life that says, that's not the way it should be. You're not feeling some compassion for Lance Armstrong? Oh, Lord, help me. I've got access to the mercy seat. I've got mercy coming from God. I've got forgiveness coming from God right at that moment if I will seek it. Do I have to go somewhere and clean myself up and change my attitudes, go through some therapy session? Say to myself, I shall not, I shall not, I shall not, and trying to change myself. No, let God be God. Let God come with his mercy and his grace and change your heart in that moment when he sees, when you see what he sees and he's putting his finger on it. It's great news, folks. The mercy seat is open 24-7. And the depths of that only one day a year is now held in contrast to what the blood of Christ has done to give us availability any moment, any time, any place, for any sin. As 1 John 1 verse 7 says, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from every sin. I'm hoping that in your Christian life you have built in the response in your heart that says, I know where the mercy seat is. I'm a regular customer. I avail myself of the mercy of God that he has made available to me in Christ. It's not like, oh dear, I'll just wait for a few weeks till I feel a bit better, then I'll, I'll, I'll repent. No. Respond when God's putting his finger on your heart and your life. And you will find then the true holiness and compassion that Christ means you to walk in day by day, moment by moment. And so when you're watching the news and something pricks your heart that says, Richard, you're not all that you should be. Why aren't you moved with compassion for these people? I can say, I'm sorry, God. I can find mercy. I don't have to wait for Sunday. I don't have to wait to see a pastor. There's places for that, and yes, maybe there's some things I need to talk through. But folks, may we be making ourselves, or taking available everything that Christ has done for us. The mercy seat is now open for business. Has been since the day that Jesus has died. For many of us, we might have something that we're just holding on to that's saying, well, that's just Australian that I feel that way. Or we feel justified by having an attitude towards someone. Yes, see, Lance doesn't deserve the mercy of God. Yes, he does. He deserves it as much as you do. And when you come to realisation of that, I think you really found the mercy seat. You found the holiness of God. Let's pray. Father, you're such a wonderful God. We've celebrated this morning your love. We've sung about it. And now you're challenging us about our response to your mercy. Lord, none of us in this room are worthy of it. There's nothing we can do to earn it. But we do want to respond 
Thank you so much that you made the way open by Jesus being the high priest that's taken us into the holy place, the most holy place, and brought us to the mercy seat. Father, would you help your people respond personally to the mercy seat and may they, as ministers of reconciliation, bring many more Cause our paths to cross, people, cross with people who need the mercy seat. May we at that time not give them judgment, but tell them about your grace and your mercy. Amen. Amen.